Properties, the podcast that cuts the property industry to the bone. We answer your questions with our expert guests and call out all the bullshit that makes the industry only slightly more popular than British politics. We are your hosts, Matt Smith. And I'm Chris Erickson. And we are your Properties. Right. Hey, Chris. Hey, Matt. You all right? Yeah, not bad. You? All good, all good. Good. Well, it's uh, it's good to um, to be able to get a, 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 a podcast where we don't have a guest. Um, as much as we love having a guest, but this week um, we are going to just have a chat about the market. Yeah. Um, and um, hopefully people will find that useful. Um, it's looking uh, reasonably positive out there, I think, actually. I mean, if you, depending on who you listen to, of course, but there seems to be a, a spirit of um, rejuvenation in the market, which is, which is something, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of people are coming out now with reports sort of saying that it's not very exciting, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. So yeah. you know, nothing's, there's nothing detrimental happening to the market, be it positive or negative for that matter. And I think the sort of status- Stable. Exactly, stable, mm. that's the right word, um, is, is sort of providing um, you know, a bit more incentive for people to get back there into yeah. the market. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it, you know, the, the, the market's always, um, it's all on sentiment, isn't it, property market. Um, and if people are feeling confident, then the market tends to to pick up. And then that translates into agents, people saying, oh, it's, you know, the market's improving. Then that leaks through to the press. And then there's a self-fulfilling prophecy, yeah. which is which it's nice when it goes upwards for once, actually, <laughs> um, positive as opposed to the older doom and gloom, because that tends to, to, to spread faster than good news. Yeah. But I think people are just a bit desperate for some good news, aren't they? Yeah, they definitely are. I mean, we, we talked about um, a lot of sort of geopolitical factors that are playing out in the world at the moment from... Yeah, know, some pretty scary ones. Potential actually. war. And yeah. well, I, lo- I liked your article that you uh, released about oh, um, what happens to property markets during wars. Yeah, uh, it wasn't <laughs> the most positive article to write, but... But uh, very interesting, because what does happen to property market? I mean, you know, we, we were saying, like, uh, if we if we get uh, sent off to the trenches in Ukraine, who's yeah. going to pay the mortgage? That's right. Um, and, and sadly enough, uh, if you look back at the last World War, the Second World War. Um, the answer to that is, well, business as no usual, one. if you yeah. like. Yeah. You know, you have to continue paying your mortgages, um, which is a scary thought in today's world. That but just of course, makes no sense to me. I don't understand how that could even be possible. You get sent off to 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 uh, defend the country, and then you come back to, sorry, mate, your house has been repossessed. Yeah, which is exactly what happened during the Second World War. I think that I mean the caveat here is that the world has changed tremendously since the last World War, right? And you know, property mainly price. because I don't think anyone's going to be prepared to go. Well, that's that, that's true. But I just <laughs> like, meant in terms, sorry, no. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of sort of pricing and inflation and everything else. But it is worth noting that on that article we found some um, some interesting stats. And if we look at your income versus how many times your income is required to be able to buy a property, that's mm. the easiest metric to use. At the moment, you're somewhere around eight to nine times your income. Yeah. On average in the UK. So yeah, that obviously which doesn't, is a terrifying thought. A terrifying thought, that's right. During the 1950s and 60s, that was two to one. But during the 1930s, leading up to the war, so 1939, it was eight. 
So, so historically, it sort of tends to fall in between that sort of six to eight times your income to be able to buy a Is property. Is that because the, the salaries were so bad because it they was were. Uh, the Great Depression and yeah. that sort of period? That's right, yeah. And, and then so they sort of recovering from the First World War even in there. Yeah, correct. I suppose. And then you had that boom, Second World War, and then everyone started making more money. And then, mm. you know, the value, values increased, but so did your income. Yeah. Uh, more so than the values. But... I guess the answer is, if war breaks out, who knows what's going to happen, right? Because we live in a completely different world. Yeah. And, you know, I, we don't even know if, if that means troops on the ground or whether it's just, you know, AI robots flying around fighting each other. But yeah. we'll, we'll find out sooner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, no, but it, it is, it's good to have some, some positivity in the market. And I think certainly we've noticed um, definitely a, a, an increase in uh, inquiries. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, people looking for uh, for stock for buyers, you know, other professionals that act on the buying side. Um, and I think there's no question that there's a shortage of stock, which is obviously good for helping uh, buoy up prices. Um, you know, depending on which article you read, some people are saying the prices have dropped. Some people are saying they've gone up slightly. But as you say, nothing uh, of any real interest. I mean, mm. no, there's nothing, uh, you know, major. So it's the the opposite of the Chinese curse of may you live in interesting times. We're, we're yeah. living in stable times, which is, uh, I suppose, good for, good for the property market. Um, personally, I think, you know, when, when everyone's saying, oh, you know, things are really looking good and it's a great start to the year. I'm like, I think it's relative because, I mean, I think the last year for most people, I think, has been pretty horrendous. Interest rates being what they were and, you know, people just taking a breath and thinking, oh, my God, maybe I'll just wait and see what happens. Um so yes, I think there is an improvement, and I, I think we can all get on board with the positivity side of things. But I wouldn't say it's amazing. No, and let's not let's not forget there is an election this year. Yeah, uh, in something like seventy percent of the world's or the Western world. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so who knows what's going to happen this year? Yeah, I norm- normally say that uh, you know ele- we never like election years because mm. anything that can bring any sort of uncertainty. We've mentioned it before on our various podcasts, but we talked about. I'll never forget it because it, it was it was it was something that shouldn't have had an impact on the London property market and had a massive impact, and that was the Scottish referendum. Yeah, and you remember how it just killed the market. Yeah, it was such and an it was incredible. Like, what the hell has it got to do with London? Exactly, yeah. and now we're dealing with some pretty serious things globally. Yeah. So one would think that because of the general election coming up, the election in America, and as you say, that the remaining sixty-eight percent of democratic countries out there all going to the polls this year, you'd think that this would be quite an uncertain time. But I think the way the world is, I think a lot of people are looking forward to an election to get their voices heard and hopefully start seeing some change. So I think Mm. most people are sort of taking a slightly more positive view on this. What will happen, of course, we'll find out. I mean, is it mm. is it a Labour government under Starmer and then a Trump presidency in the US? Mm-hmm. That spells trouble. Yeah, yeah. But let's see what happens. I think the fact that the, I, I mean, as we're recording this, it's uh, the news is that the bank um, just held the rate at 5.25, the that's interest right. rate. So yeah, that's, that's breaking news as we speak. Mm. That's the fourth time running now that they've held the rate stable. Yeah. And that stability is, is what you were talking about earlier. Yeah. It doesn't help affordability so much because it's still very high. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Very high compared to what it used to be um, and the last time they were this high. And they're not that high historically. It's just that the prices are so much higher yeah, than they yeah. were yeah. than the, when the last time rates were at this at this level. Well, the Supla Property Index, which we talked about a little bit yesterday, said that um, 
the back end of last year and also taking some of the earlier parts of this year into account, mind you, that's the 1st of February today, um, said that this was the cheapest time since 2013, 2014 to buy a property. Um, and that means in terms of mortgages being available, um, your wage versus um, the price of the property. So in mm. terms of the, the amount of times so you'd have to multiply your wage out. And we don't think of 2013, 2014 as an affordable time. No, that makes no sense to me. It doesn't. That, but if you remember- it was a peak in the market. It was a peak in the market, but it was a peak in the market because wages had gone up. Yeah. And, and interest rates were really low though. They were 0.5%. Yeah. So, the, you know, when we called the market last year, you and I both sat here and we, we sort of said November, December, this mm. is the bottom of the market. Mm. I can we can sort of stand by that now yeah. and say that was right because yeah. now buyers right are coming again. back in. Yeah, right <laughs> again. Now buyers are coming back in, and if you sat with large uh, sort of amounts of cash in the bank, not knowing what to do, mm. you should have been buying property in mm. London because I think that time has already passed now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it's safe to say that the the lower end of the market and the higher end of the market are doing very well. It's the middle that I think is struggling, yeah. um, and that is, is is completely down to affordability. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and I think a lack of least decent stock. I mean, what what's fascinated me um, out of the, the the deals that we've got going through at the moment, of which fortunately for us there's quite a few, um, is how pernickety buyers are and even if they're buying a property that's not new you know which which normal people buy you know you're not buying something off plan or from a developer you're buying just a standard normal property people want it to be absolutely perfect down to you know not being a light bulb that's not yeah. working um yeah. which I, I don't think i've ever seen that before where people would just say well you know i want to come in and inspect it before i exchange i want to inspect it before completion i want to have a retention just in case there's any damages when the owner moves out and you're just thinking like what the hell is this this is just not anything I've ever come across before. Are you calling a new trend? <laughs> I think I am. Yeah, no, I mean, th you're absolutely right, Matt. And there's, there's a couple of reasons why that is the case. I mean, one of the things we saw when we had a look at some of the, the latest uh, news articles for today's podcast was that it says that the average buyer in the UK, the first time buyer, FTBs as they refer to, is now 32 years old, yeah. and they have to put down a deposit of just under £52,000, which is effectively £20,000 more than it was this time 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So the buyers are getting a little bit older. Yeah. It also, but because it's the sort of younger generation and it's fueled a lot by, you know, it's not a lot of 18-year-old kids buying. It's now 32-year-old grown men and women who are looking to buy. Mm -hmm. And they have higher standards in terms of today's world. So, but were know, there always a lot of eighteen-year-olds buying properties? No, but I think a lot. No, it wasn't. It was. It was more the sort of parents buying for their kids, yeah. if anything, or or the parents upgrading. But you know, we bought and sold several times in our yeah. lifetime, right? And I remember buying a you know a two-bedroom flat, if you remember, when, in in Putney in southwest mm. London, and it was ground and low ground, and the low ground had plenty of damp in it. And as a property professional, we're like, yeah, it's a lower ground. It, of course, it has damp in it. We'll buy it, we'll fix it, we'll renovate it. And we did. Yeah. We put very little money into it and then saw a huge capital appreciation when it came to sell it 18 months later, right? Yeah. Those times are gone now. Buyers today, they, they want everything to be just right. Mm. And they are unwilling to take the risks because the property market isn't increasing or appreciating in value in the same way it used to. And you're paying so much in stamp duty that you're not going to get that money back. That's right. Your value is eroded yeah, it's in not, taxes. The property market's not yeah. going up quickly enough. Yeah.
and mm. technology and everything else. You know, we not, we, we're going to talk about some technology trends of 2024, but one trend that's been following for quite a while now, which is just becoming more and more um, sort of uh, mainstream, is home automations. Mm. So you're talking about sort of lights being controlled through your phone and, you know, your fridge restocking or telling you when to stock and everything's controlled by Alexa and all these sort of modern inventions and the tech that's coming into the, the house. The smart house. The smart house. Yeah, it's becoming more and more. And you can see it from the younger generation. You know, they, they, they don't communicate in the same way that we communicated. They don't socialize in the same way we socialized. And because of the pandemic and this sort of new trend, if you like, you're getting a lot of people spending a lot more time at home. And so the home becomes much more important, not just from a living perspective, but also from a work perspective. And so they want everything to be working right. Yeah, I suppose so. And I, your expectations change. I mean, there's um, I, 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 when you see children who have grown up with smartphones and then they try and uh, lower a car window or, or a TV yes. screen by <laughs> touching it and they can't understand why it doesn't do the same thing that a screen does on a phone. Um, and you can, you can, I guess, translate that into the way people want to look at property, where they, where they expect things to work digitally or in a way that is much more modern, I suppose, than, than, than we do. I mean, yeah. well, I get frustrated sometimes when you go into these very modern properties and you try and turn on a light and you need a touch panel and a degree in engineering to turn on the light, <laughs> uh, which I, I suppose is... You know, for for for, for a younger people might find that to be standard. And you think, oh, what, what is this like weird light dimmer switch that I have to touch and turn when in actual fact I should be able to do it from my phone before I even come into the property? But you, we have lots of buyers who say that, though, when they walk into properties, they say, you know, how's the lighting controlled? And you think, mm. well, 10 years ago, no one asked how you switch on a light in the home. Mm. And now it's starting to become more standardized, you know. is it, You know, it was the day where you just plugged in your iPad and that was the latest innovation. Yeah. Nowadays, it's all controlled. You know? And, and also, I think, what, what, what we've also seen um, with the um, safety certificates that are now required um, for properties over a certain height, um, mm. which was fairly new. We've talked about this before on the podcast, but this is something that um, ha has, I think, shifted a mood as well, With especially when people are buying property that isn't brand new. Um, there's new legislation that these properties have to meet. So a lot of buildings are being retrofitted for things and leaseholders especially are being handed massive bills mm -hmm. um, for, you know, to, to bring the property up to scratch for new legislation. So I think people are being even more cautious and because solicitors, I think, are finding um, that they're having to deal with something new themselves that they didn't fully understand because nobody fully understood the legislation because it was so confusing and they kept changing it to try and uh, make it... Um, more compliant um, is that people are being so cautious with things like that. And I guess you have to be because if you're buying something for, I don't know, let's say for argument's sake, a million pounds, and then you get told two months after buying it that you have to stump up 60K to yeah. put into, you know, change the outside of the building or something, then you know, not everyone's going to have that kind of money lying around, right? So yeah, you have to be very careful now. And a lot of that, that in terms of the sentiment of wanting everything to be brand new, was also pushed or, or, or sort of built into the system because of all the new builds that were built. Yeah. I mean, we've had, we've had what, 10 years or 12 years yeah, of longer. an Im immense amount of new builds completing, yeah. Yeah. right? The whole of London's changed. Yeah, completely. In, in terms of skyscrapers. Yeah, just look at the skyline. I mean, yeah. it's unrecognizable. I mean, that is very interesting, Chris, because people, I mean, I remember when, when I started back in uh, the property property business back in the Jurassic period, hmm. uh, nobody wanted to buy a modern apartment. 
Yeah. They were just that everyone hated them, and now people love them. Yeah, you know, it's been a real shift. I think um, the standards have changed, and just I think people are just so fed up with having to um, deal with older period property where there's so many issues. Do you know what this reminds me of? This, when I when I first came to work for you back in the Riverside days, this mm. was the very pitch that we learned to convince buyers coming from Chelsea in those period blocks to buy in the new builds along, you know, Albion Riverside yeah. and everything else yeah. along Battersea Bridge. That was the very pitch that we used. And interestingly, as more and more people have sort of converted to modern living, um, you know, one floor living and everything else, lateral living. Um, you can see more and more people like it. Mm. And well, you like it. You live I in a modern it. I love it. I, but I've always liked apartments, to be fair. Yeah. And funny enough, always lived in houses. But I've always loved the idea. And then when I started living in, um, in sort of larger lateral apartments, I realized just how convenient it is as well. Yeah. Um, it helps, of course, if you've got a view and everything else. But even if you don't, just the way of living. It, it's mm, All at one level. Yeah, it's yeah. simple. And yeah. staircases take up a lot of space in they houses. Do. But they're uh, good for throwing people down and for escaping from other people. That's true. That's the only thing you, you can't get away from when you live <laughs> in a lateral apartment. But I mean, I, th I think it just sort of, you know, most of the world have got used to this. And mm. London, for some reason, was sort of behind the times. Yeah. And you look at sort of, you look at China, you know, cities like Shanghai were little farming villages not mm. that long ago and are now, you know, cities bigger than London um, in the space of 20 years. So, you know, where they're building skyscrapers in, in less than a mm. year or in some cases in, in a couple of weeks. Um, it's it's changed a lot, uh, and so has the demographic of of the country as well. So. When European cities are, I guess, probably a better um, comparison to London than, say, Shanghai potentially. But I mean, places like France or Barcelona, where people lived in apartment blocks rather than in their own houses, you know, whether in in plots. But they had, you know, massive apartments. Which are, yes, which true. Are lateral living is. Um, I mean, I th I think I, I don't mind living on on one level. I. I do quite like having different floors, though, I must say. Um, but, yeah, it's... Uh, Isn't it just the idea, though, that if you live in a house, it's it's sort of, it's your house, it's your front door. It's, yeah. You also get a garden with that, of course, which yeah. is the big selling point. But you feel like it's yours, mm. as opposed to an apartment where you, you're sharing it with a neighbour on the other side of that wall, right? Um, I, I wonder if it's more sort of psychological than anything else, because, the, I mean, if you can replicate the size of a house in a lateral floor plan, Difficult to do, particularly in London, unless you've got a lot of money. I mean, there is something incredible about that sort of living space. Right? I think there is. I think I think for me, the best part about being on different levels, and you can replicate this in an apartment if you've got enough money, is having the bedroom sufficiently separate from the living area so that there's less sound transference. Mm -hmm. um, but the majority of flats that people live in in London... Uh, are are often from converted houses, so that the you know even if you are on a different floor, if you're in an apartment, you've got people stomping around uh, upstairs, or you know, or playing music downstairs, and you've got a living room above a bedroom, and vice versa. Yeah. And it's all a bit of a sort of hodgepodge. So something that's newly built um, with uh, kitchens above kitchens and reception rooms above reception rooms and better sound insulation, then yeah, I mean, I think that's that's definitely why people have found um, modern apartment blocks much better than converted houses. No, that's right. And and just going back, finally, I, I, I think, you know, you said European buyers is probably a better example than, than sort of uh, Chinese buyers or Asian buyers. But it brings back to in terms of 
we were talking about where are the buyers at the moment. Mm. And we talked to an agent recently yeah. who had uh, put sort of seven or eight transactions together as an under offer this month. And um, when we asked where the buyers came from, they were they were only two different demographics. They were either American, of which two of them were American, and the remaining five or six of those buyers were Chinese. Mm, and not just Chinese, mainland Chinese. Mainland Chinese, that's yeah. right. Yeah, which is interesting because obviously there are difficulties in terms of getting mm. money out of China, mm. but it just goes to show, well, you know, the European buyers weren't there. Yeah, the there's British ways buyers. to get the money out. You know, I think that there has been a massive influx of um, buyers from Hong Kong. Um, but those that, that particular example that you're using, yeah, very interesting. Mm. Mainland Chinese. Well, that's where a lot of the money is now. Yeah, and that's typical of the London market, right? You sell to 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 where to who's got the money. Indeed, um, I'm just looking at some of some newsworthy articles to discuss, and you brought this up the other day. You said that um, Labour have come up with the idea that. Estate agents should be regulated. Yeah, something that we've qualified. talked. About. Yeah, that's something we've talked about in detail. Um, Rupert Collingwood, who we had on as a guest, one of the earlier shows, um, he was spoke very anti. This. He's very anti this. Mm. Yeah, for various reasons, and it's worth listening to that podcast if you haven't heard it. Um, but the headline is: Estate agents, old and new, have to have at least one A level under Labour. And yeah. When I read that, I I almost fell off my chair because I thought, what is one A level going to do? And how are you? So you're going to get back. A 45-year-old man who didn't do A-levels went straight to work, which mm. was the right thing to do for this industry. Mm. And then what? go back to school and get an A-level to be able to continue selling property. I'm, I'm sure there will have to be some kind of, if you've been in the in the industry for a certain amount of time, you just have to answer certain questions um, to, to, to be given an equivalent. Well, it says, it says that this would mean that all current agents could be forced to return to education if they do not already have the minimum level of qualifications and would likely be given a grace period in which to comply with the new entry requirements. Mm. Well, I didn't go to high school in the UK, so I don't have an A-level per se, yeah. but I have an equivalent. But I mean, how on earth are they <coughs> going to enforce that? There's no way that's no. going to happen. No. I and mean, that's another one of those ridiculous soundbite headlines. Yeah. But on the face of it, I think that, um, you know, having a qualification is not a bad idea just to, to meet certain standards. I, well, I it, it, you know, it's it it stem, worth doing. It, I agree. And it stems from the idea of trying to get rid of the sort of sharks, if you like, mm. you know, one man bands who, yeah, yeah. cowboys who, who yeah. just sort of come into the market with, with no experience and they don't uphold the, the sort of values that yeah. this industry does and gives it a very poor name. Um, or one might say anybody who thinks that they uh, look good on Instagram yeah. deciding that they're a property professional. Yeah. That's true. So that's where it comes from. Uh, and like you, I'm not necessarily against the idea either. Um, but I mean, if you have 10, 15, if, if you have five years experience and yeah. you've lasted that long, this is yeah. a cutthroat industry. If you lasted five years, you're pretty decent at what you do in this industry. Yeah? Or mad. Or mad. Um, but that should be taken into account. Or both. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it's um, it'll be uh, uh, an interesting one to watch. Personally, I don't, I don't think they're going to be able to say, right, you have to go back to school, mate, and get an A-level. I mean, there's, that's unlikely to happen. But there was, where did I say? There was also um, an interesting article on... Um, on income, I think it was in the Times, about how much do estate agents actually earn when oh, they look yes. at all the people from um, million dollar listing and yeah. um, selling Sunset and all that. And they were looking at people in the States and, and over here. Um, it, you know, if you, obviously we're not going to disclose what we earn or people what people we know earn, but I was quite surprised at how um, low a lot of the incomes that were in that particular article were. And they're saying how it's actually... Um, not really a profession that 
people can afford to stay in. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I think, I mean, we're well aware of what people earn in the UK. We are lucky enough to live and work in London, mm. where those wages are in the top five percentile. Um, but we always had, well, I certainly did, always had this idea that in the US, um, because it was sort of, you know, uh, you earn what you um, you earn what what's the term I was looking for? You eat what you kill. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I was going to say kill what you eat, but yeah, um, that the commissions were much higher, and obviously they have six percent fees over there as mm. opposed to our sort of one and a half, two percent here. But the reality is that the average U.S. estate agent was earning something like sixty-five thousand dollars. Yeah, which is translates I don't know somewhere around forty-five to fifty thousand pounds. Yeah, and that's not a very good wage. It's at not. All. Although their cost of living over there is a lot lower. Yeah, um, but as an agent, they yeah. also front a lot of the costs they that do. we don't do here in the mm, UK. Mm. You know, in terms of you know American expectations when it comes to selling a property is that it's yeah, fully you, staged. Yeah, stage it. That's right. It's something that you know people are just getting the hang of here. You know, when you mm. say, well, you know, back in the day, you would just take some pictures. Yeah, you'd put it in your window. And then hope someone walked in and you'd convince them to come and see this property and hopefully yeah. they liked it. And if they did, they bought it. But that has never worked in the US. You know, they've always been staging homes. Yeah. I say always, you know, for the majority of it, and particularly when you get above the sort of million dollar mark, it's expected. Yeah. But that means for an agent has to fork out fifteen to $20,000. Yeah. And if they do that on their first listing and they don't sell that, yeah. well, A, they'd declare bankruptcy and they're out of the industry. Yeah. So I suspect, you know, that comes as an average figure because a lot of people fail. Those that do make it, however, yeah. um, you know, your, your Frederick Eklunds and various others, you know, they're reported to, to you know, earn tens of millions. Yeah, so. but I mean, again, but they are very much the exception. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's, um, it is shocking how low fees are over here. And I'm sure that as sellers or, or non-agents, people will think, you know, you guys get paid enough as it is. Um, but the reality of it is, I mean, if you, you're selling such an important asset, it's such an important transaction. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't take a Tiffany necklace and sell it down Camden Market on a store, right? You, you'd want a professional to handle that for you and you'd be prepared to pay top dollar for it because it's a Tiffany necklace. I mean, yeah. if you're if you're selling such an important asset, you don't want to hand it over to an idiot. No, I agree. Um, and also, um, I have to say, I mean, we talked about this quite a lot with Moshe um, on our previous podcast, but people who use solicitors that are dirt cheap are making such a mistake. Yeah. And they... So many people do it. They take a multi-million pound property and employ a solicitor who is, you know, bottom of the range. I just don't understand why people do it. It's weird, but it also falls into this having sort of minimum educational requirements for the industry because it. I think that just highlights because the people we deal with are smart people. Mm. You know, people that come and buy a million pound property, they're, they're not idiots. These are yeah. smart, hardworking people To, I mean, think about the deposit requirement for that. That's, you know, 20% at least. It's yeah. 200,000 pounds. You yeah. don't save up 200,000 pounds by being an idiot. So these are smart people. And we tell them, these smart people, do now not pick a solicitor over the case, you know, for the sake of three or four thousand pounds. Yeah. That's that's the top to the bottom. Don't go on the lower end yeah. because they're crucial in getting this deal through for you. Okay. And then you get a call from the conveyancing service in Bristol or wherever, um, and they're not actual, you know, litigators or solicitors. They're sort of just a conveyancing belt of solicitors. And then so often, three months later, you get the buyer saying, "Oh, Matt, what, or Matt, Chris, why didn't I listen to you?" Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that's to do with perception because they, you know, we, we we're not necessarily bad at getting our views across, and we have the experience to back it up. But people still think that. This is a simple transaction. You know, you yeah. hear from people like, oh, yeah, I'll just exchange in a couple of weeks. And yeah. 
you will be nowhere in a couple of weeks. Yeah. You know, you, you, searches won't be back because yeah. the local council hasn't even started yeah. digging them out yet. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, we have to educate and educate and educate the general public on just, you know, how challenging this process can be, depending on what you're buying. And actually, Chris, I mean, that could bring us on quite nicely or something that we wanted to discuss is... Um, is how the property industry is so ripe for modernization and change. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, especially something like the conveyancing process. Yeah. I mean, there's never been a time that's as, as strong as the current one when it comes to sort of modernizing an industry. And most and industries. there's never been the, the ability. I mean, I think that the techn technological changes at the moment are, are, are motoring ahead like we've never seen mm. them before. This is, this is when it's going to happen, right? Yeah, no, I, I, you're 100%. And this industry is very, very old school in terms of how it operates, you know, to the point where, I mean, it's not everyone, but we're talking about solicitors. There's, there's the agency part of it, which is modernizing because that's sort of, that's the entrepreneurial aspect. They're, mm. they're, they're not all doing it because it comes at a big cost, but those that can are modernizing. Foxton's recently did some great modernizations. They've always been sort of cutting edge when it comes yeah, to they have, being yeah. modern, right? And mm. they, I saw well, as we uh, walked down the King's Road, uh, one of their latest offices to have been rebranded. Uh, and it's just the way they display properties it was mm. just one big screen yeah it looks um, amazing it, it yeah. looks amazing it's difficult yeah, it to explain does, yeah. just what they've done but so if you ever get the chance just have a look past their office because they, they've sort of taken it to the next stage of how property marketing uh, looks on the high street but they've done a great job um but this comes back to then the solicitors the local council who you're dealing with yeah and the government yeah and where you know can you just send it to me on DocuSign or an alternative to DocuSign right now? Sign the contract. No, you have to physically be in the country or you have to physically be here. I remember doing a, a deal when we were working together, Matt, I mean, in our previous life, where the buyer couldn't exchange contracts. He was in the US because it had major tax implications. So he got on a plane and flew to Canada and Canada being part of the Commonwealth meant that he had some tax savings if he exchanged contracts while standing on Canadian soil. <laughs> and you think... Oh my God! Mm. I mean, this should this contract should pop up on your phone. You should be able to sign it, and it should be legally binding. Because yeah. DocuSign, for example, and I, we're not promoting DocuSign; it's just the one we use. It's legitimate. Mm -hmm. It shows you who signed it. It goes to the sender and you get a little certificate with it. So why on earth are we still sending original copies, you know, to the lawyers and getting them to hand sign it and send it back? And why does it take weeks to get searches? They should be instant. Exactly. And I mean, the contracts, even when you look at the sort of mortgage deeds and then the mortgage requirements, they, they set a few days extra. So they say, you've got to complete by this date, plus or minus two days or whatever it is, because of post right? Because you've got to, they know that you've got to send the originals to get notified and verified and everything else. And it, it, if that's the basics, imagine then when you sort of filter that out to the rest of the work where people are mm. calling up and, and sort of push, you know, writing, uh, you know, inquiries here and there, this should all be automated. And it's what they try to do with the HIP, yeah. the Home Information Pack, yeah. which, which failed miserably. Yeah. But well, there's got it didn't to go far enough. But it's got to, it, there's got to be a way to do it. And every single day now, because we're keeping a close eye on this, we're seeing more and more companies coming into the industry to try yeah. and modernize it. Yeah. The problem is that a lot of those people don't come from that industry as in our industry. Mm. So they see a problem because they're either a landlord, a tenant, a buyer or a homeowner. So they, you know, that affects almost everyone mm. in this country, right? So they see the problem and they think, oh, well, we can fix that. Yeah. They can't fix it that easy because they don't have the experience and they don't understand the human emotions involved yeah. in it. But everyone is trying and they are raising so much money at the moment um, in terms of trying to find ways to solve 
in this industry uh, from a technological aspect. And it's coming. It's happening. Uh, a couple of years' time, I think, I mean, blockchain, for example, um, I know Danny Daggers is a big fan of this. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, it's a major thing that will have. T- tell our listeners what blockchain is. Oh, I'm not qualified enough to, to discuss. <laughs> give, give us a, give us a layman's but, description. But I mean, b- blockchain technology will allow transactions to happen at a very fast pace. And they're completely secure as well. So we don't have to necessarily worry about sending money from one country to another country to clear through accounts and to verify all these sort of things. We, we can do it instantaneously. Um, and that's just on the finance side, you know, and then you take the conveyancing side into it. There's absolutely well, no reason. That's the real delay is the conveyance yeah. side. I mean, money transfers, it's, it's, it's having the, uh, the paperwork, you know, in place from the beginning. That's where, that's why the whole thing falls down. But there is a lot of blockchain technology happening as we speak. The, mm. the UK government has spent a lot of money. I mean, in some, I think it's in, in the billions what they've spent on implementing blockchain behind the scenes. We For don't property. Well, in general terms of how they run run the government, um, and there's blockchain in in property as well from HMRC's point of view, as well as land registry. Um, but the idea of being able to transact quickly, think about a new build, for example, right? Mm. Apart from searches, yeah. everything else should be there. Yeah. There should be, you shouldn't have to raise 20, 30, 40. I mean, we've had buyers, solicitors raise 100 inquiries. Yeah. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Mm. And then it goes over to the other solicitor and he says, what? Are you kidding me, right? And yeah. then you start off on a bad footing already, right? Yeah. Because some solicitors decide to raise every inquiry known to man. Yeah. Do you have neighbors? Yes. Tick. Do you have water? Yes. Who's the supplier? I mean, yeah. completely useless. The building knows who the suppliers are. Yeah. It's the list, right? Yeah. It should all be auto-populated almost. Yeah. There's absolutely no reason why that information shouldn't be able to be sent over in one day. Yeah. Then throw in AI, being able to sort, sort uh, cipher through that information, put it all into a sort of a blockchain technology, and why can you not buy a property in one day? Well, this is exactly why now is the time for some, you know, clever people in the AI slash tech industry to to sort this out. Yeah. Um, and uh, I am all for it. I mean, you know, I, I have very mixed feelings on AI, depending on which part of it we're talking about. But that would be great. You know, if, the, if, if you can get these things answered instantly, right? Because all the information is there. It's just for some reason seems to take forever for two solicitors to to ask a question and answer it. And I suppose it's not just the solicitors, there's the managing agents and the freeholders and, and the all bank, the other people that the are The underwriters and everyone That's else. Right. You know, that often takes a long time as well, yeah. bank to process it. Yeah. But you know, it's interesting, you mentioned AI, I mentioned AI several times. I, we were in a meeting the other day with a, with a developer who knows his stuff, shall we say. And he was sort of almost like laughing at, at the idea of us mentioning AI all the time. Mm. Because AI and... Uh, and what we're referring to, uh, there's, there's like not a better, matching algorithm, matching algorithm, exactly, yeah. are, are two different things, yeah. right? And and sort of finding an algorithm AI is a catch-all phrase. It, I think it is, yeah. Right. But I mean, finding an algorithm that can that can di- decipher certain information based on what you're looking for that's yeah. existed for a long time. Yeah. We just sort of said, oh, it's AI now, and mm. people are getting used to it. But mm. the, I, I think that the industry is ripe for change. It's ripe for innovation. Someone's going to get it right. Yeah. Um, or plenty of people might get it right, but the industry is changing and, and just the way we work. Just look at how we operate now in terms of marketing. You know, a lot of that we can auto-generate now. Yeah. Right? We yeah. can write a description, but in terms of setting, a, a, you know, creating a brochure and all these things that took so much time before, 
Now we have the technology to speed that up yeah. at incredible levels. What yeah. could take hours takes minutes now. Yeah. And the same is true for every single facet of the of the real estate sort of process. So I think that that will have shockwaves. Whether that reduces our fees or increase our fees or have no impact on our fees is another story because people might think that a lot of this is just automated and why should we pay you, um, you know, a lot of money. Um, what they think is a lot of money um, for this for this transaction if all you're doing is automating it. Because we've had this argument many times before about right move when people started walking off the high street and just looking online. So it's mm. like, well, all you do is put it on right move and then just mm. sit back and wait for inquiries. Yeah. I think if you do that, you're a substandard agent. Yeah, a, a real agent uses that as a marketing tool for sure. It's a big, you know, it's it's exposure, massive exposure. Well, to it's a a, big just audience. a very big office window, right? But you can't rely on selling properties through right move. You know, you have no. to get pick up the phone and start making contacts, right? And it's how we. Well, and also be, because of what we just talked about, because of how difficult it is to get these actually get these through. <laughs> that's where a good agent comes into into um, in, into value to be value. So I mean, you know, who knows if this does become a completely seamless instant process we might be out of job i was gonna say we, we may just have told ourselves out of a job here yeah well maybe we should be on the other side then and make sure yeah, exactly. we're part of, of making this process seamless but th there's absolutely no reason as to why this process couldn't be seamless yeah um and and there's certainly a lot of room for improvement yeah you know i think there'll always be a a reason to have a human at the end of the phone or in some way involved um but god does it need improving yeah, and I think we need, so like you said, we need to find a healthy balance between sort of human interaction mm. and, and uh, the technology that that um, that exists, right? Yeah, it's, it's finding that middle ground. Yeah, of, of best of both. That's right. In terms of sort of the the top real estate technology trends for 2024, we've we've compiled a little list here, and we're not going to go through all all of them. There are 15 of them, but no. it's worth mentioning a few of them. We've talked a lot about artificial intelligence already, so that's obviously one of the things that we're going to see more and more in our industry. Um, but then there's things like blockchain, which we touched on. I think a lot of it here comes down to um, the sort of real estate CRM software as well as the management software. It sounds very boring, but for the agents, it's having a system that can auto-generate a lot of the information that we take on and also figure out a way how to use that information better, right? We recently talked to a couple of guys based out in India who had come up with an idea of figuring out how to extract as much value as possible from their database. And they had a couple of agents here in the UK with I think about 10 or 11 chains. So not, you know, not small, but not massive. And there were a couple hundred thousand buyers registered on their database and they put that database through a system. And then that system could, using, I say again, AI, but using certain algorithms, find out from that information, from email contact information and from the information that's been inputted into their system, who's looking, where they're looking, what opportunities, do they own something? Can Does that need to be sold? Can we come and have a look, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's so much data, big data in this industry and it's just lying completely dormant, which people aren't picking up because the traditional way is for a new starter to get a, a selection of buyers or sellers, right, from someone else who's left or someone else who doesn't use that data anymore. And then they'll try and extract as much value from that data as possible. Mm. That's how we all started in every company we worked for, right? Yeah. You get handed the sort of deadbeat of, yeah, of, of the buyers and sellers. And find out if they're still looking, if they've got something to sell. To and rent, what happens, they know and what happens if yeah. you succeed, which, yeah. you, which we both have, you extract value from those buyers. Yeah. Right? And those buyers have been, been put on hold or discarded by someone else. Yeah. And 
that's the human sort of interface. They couldn't couldn't be bothered or, or couldn't extract the value and then well, move and on. And also nowadays nobody picks up the phone. Correct. You know, you can't get hold of someone on the phone. In fact, it's considered rude to call someone without messaging them first. You know, you have to say, when's a good time to speak? When can I call you? If you call somebody up, they think someone's died. Uh, it's, it's such a killer to our industry. I mean, uh, as being salespeople, not being able to actually, never mind being able to not to physically meet them, which yeah. is what we used to when people used to walk into your office. Right? Yeah. You'd physically meet them and yeah. within people half an hour, you'd have a really good rapport. People don't want to. No. And, the, and, the, and, the, and, you know, <coughs> the, the more people um, are going through their earlier life of being with everything digital and being on a phone or being via an app, it'll continue to be that way. Well, so just with, the, with that, what, what you were just mentioning about this data Space. Does that not um, does that not interfere with GDPR? No, I don't. I, well, it doesn't from at, at the moment because the people that have registered have given consent for GDPR, right? And, and they've signed away their, their yeah. GDPR yeah. rights, I guess. But if you register uh, on a on a platform, mm. you're consenting to your, yeah, to the GDPR suppose, yeah. practice. Okay, so, yeah. Um, the other thing, of course, with technology is that. Having the right metrics means that we can start putting real values on properties, almost like an index. So we talk about property prices. I mean, there's an article here saying that London property prices rose in January. You know, everyone's ecstatic about that. They were like 0.1%. 0.7%. <laughs> I mean, point, what does 0.7% yeah. do? Nothing. Nothing. Real no. terms. I mean, yeah. Think about stamp duty. A lot of this data doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's too broad. That's right. But if you can index that data, mm. which you can in so many other industries, I mean, mm. just look at the stock market, for example. Yeah. If you can index the property uh, property data in the same way, we will have exacting values. The reason I mention that is because one of the things about blockchain uh, its implementation in our industry is that you are able to buy a fraction. So it's fractional ownership of a property. Mm. So you and I can go and buy one eighth each of a three bedroom apartment in Knightsbridge. Yeah. And because of blockchain, we're able to transact that the very next second if we want to at a profit or a loss. So it's, it's a basically like a share. It becomes like a share. Mm. And if all the data is compiled and you can start doing that, I think, I mean, laws have to change in this country in mm. order for you to do that. But that's probably where we're going with this. So that you'd own fractional ownership in lots of properties. And if you own a big enough fraction, it could become a bit like timeshare almost. Mm. It's like, you know, I'm in London next week and yeah. I use my... Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Week. So it's not like you, because there's, there's already where you can buy, you know, 10% of a property and you use it for certain amount of time a yeah. year whereas this is what you're talking about is just owning a percentage of a property never using it perhaps it's rented out or and people can just can just trade that share yeah it's almost like if it the, goes up in value and you decide you want to sell it you can just sell that percentage yeah and it, it, it's exactly and there's sort of two life cycles there's the people that own the majority of it if you mm. like if there is one yeah but who rent it out who live in it yeah who occupy the property for the sake of living in a property and then there's the sort of investors and I could see that becoming more and more. I mean, you could end up renting a property that's owned by a hundred different buyers or, or, or users, should we say? Or, or uh, yeah, it sounds incredibly complicated when you think about how that would translate, or, or how that would sort of the, rem, rem, the ramifications of what that would mean if you had a landlord, for example, that was. I suppose it would be a company, though. Your landlord would be a company. You wouldn't you'd, see. You'd, you wouldn't I, just I be like, oh, well, I've got, you know, no, I think, 65 I think, landlords. I think what you would do is you would set up a company or you would give it. I mean, this is an industry that's going to have to change, right? So say you and I created a company where we manage these properties, mm. like a managing agent. Mm. And we don't, you know, for our purposes, we don't liaise with a particular individual. We get the market price and rent the property out. And there are 100 different owners out there who own that property. And tomorrow... Those hundred owners could be hundred different owners. 
So that property trades. That's already a thing, isn't it? Because you've got like the build to rent sector, which is a company that owns a whole load of properties. But not it's the same thing. But a potentially a listed company. And then yeah, but not in, a what it is. not in a fractional ownership where you can trade and sell that that asset mm. in a split second on this. You could trade it three no. or four times yeah, a day. Yeah, I suppose because you'd have share in Barclay Homes or something. Yeah, really. but you yeah. can trade shares like that. Mm. You will be able to trade a property like yeah, that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, so is, that's, is that your one of your predictions? of? I say it's a prediction. It's already happening around yeah. the world. It just hasn't become mainstream yet. But I, I think for sure that is definitely something that, um, that we're going to see more of in the years to come. Okay. And what prediction-wise, what would you say um we're going to see over the next six months in terms of what the market or in yeah. terms of the real estate industry as a whole well i think the market let's talk about I the market think, a bit okay i think that it's very it, i don't need to put so too much neutral side here but i think it's very difficult to call this market this year i think yeah. that if things continue as they are right now yeah assuming all things stay the chain uh, stay, stay the same then we're going to see a better market this year, a more transactional market. I think we're going to see maybe property prices increase 1% or 2% on the back of less property and more buyers coming into the market. But I, I, we're going to see a transactional market because last year there were very little transactions. Yeah. However, like you said, 70% of the you know, democracy is about to change hands in one way or another. And two big elections, the UK election and the US presidential election, is going to have a major impact on, on what people are going to do. They're definitely going to hold fire whilst those elections are taking place. And then Although, the impe impending war, of course, let's not forget that. That yeah. could change everything tomorrow. Yeah, that, that, that could change everything. Although, I mean, yeah. I, I, I I I don't think we're going to be going to war in the next six months. Well, uh, I, I said to you yesterday, certainly not on anything that's going to affect, you know, boots on the ground in the UK. No, although <laughs> as as you know, we we talked about this yesterday when we we sort of put this article together, and and this is not property related, this is war related, and we'll get off this subject because it's depressing. But NATO are putting together their biggest training. Um, sort of session, if you like, mm. for lack of a better word, in May this year mm. in the Baltic states, yeah. where they've got all you know, 140,000 troops are going to be stationed on the ground, yeah. on the border of Ukraine, practically. Yeah. So, so if something's going to happen, it's likely to happen in the summer months if, if someone sort of yeah, steps. Yeah, but there. So we definitely won't want to buy anything in Latvia or Lithuania or Finland, but we no, but probably still buy something in... In Clapham. Well, no, I think you would if you if you if you have a real reason of buying. It's, it's sort of the investment market might cool off completely, right? Yeah. I think people will sort of say, well, let's hang on and wait. We don't have mm. to buy. But if you're mm. looking to buy, you know, the, a real buyer is someone who has a reason to buy, right? They're not going to change necessarily. Yeah. I wonder. So, but I mean, if 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 there was if there's a war, uh, a large war, that would affect the stock market. Yes. So that might be that it pushes people towards physical assets, although Except, it probably would push people towards more like gold and minerals. and Yeah, like and that. also likelihood is that if war breaks out, inflation will skyrocket Gosh. and there erodes all your value yeah. in any assets. Well, let, let's do a separate podcast where we're actually at war. <laughs> so uh, From, from uh, the front line. Yeah, exactly, exactly, with our, with our helmets and boots. I would say that um, in the next six months, we're going to see um, a very um a very interesting spring market where i think we're going to see a lot of properties come to the market that have been waiting for over a year um and i think that we're probably going to have um 
a way to go still in terms of realistic pricing. I think people are, have been waiting to bring their properties to the market because they want interest rates to stabilize. But I don't think that those sellers <coughs> necessarily have come to terms with what their properties are actually worth. Because if we look at what is actually trading, and I'm not talking about the lower end of the market and the top end of the market, I'm talking about the majority in the middle. Yeah. People, that's the price bracket. Uh, I would say from about one and a half to three million yeah. in London. Um, I would say that those sellers haven't necessarily come to terms with how much their property has dropped in value. And I could be wrong because there is a shortage of stock, but it's great that there's stability in the market and there's great that people have been holding off and they, I think they are going to come on this spring. Um, but I think that we still have a price adjustment to go to actually see trading levels mm. come to what they should be or what they need to be because people need to move. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, you, you can't hold off forever. And um, I think that um, the spring will be a good time to buy if you can find a seller who has come to their senses. That's my prediction. Yeah, no, and I agree with you. I, I think one of the, the sort of things that stops the market coming back, apart from obviously price, as you mentioned, is um, the availability of finance, right? Yeah. It's that if, if, if the financial industry takes a buoyant stance on the property market and starts handing out mortgages like Skittles, um, then the whole property market will just kickstart out of nothing. Well, the, the lenders are being a lot more flexible. They're, they are. You know, they're, they're offering some pretty decent rates. And so what they need to do then in order to get people onto the property market is to drop the deposit requirement in Absolutely. terms of how much. Because yeah. that currently is, I mean, yeah. it's anywhere And offer much longer 50. mortgages. So that's an interesting point because I wanted to come on to that because that's something that Labour has suggested in, in one of their sort of uh, pledges is that they're going to try and get first-time buyers or, or young young starters onto the mm. property market by offering them much longer mortgage terms. Yeah. Now, in the UK... You mean rates for a longer term. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So in the UK... Exactly, rates, yeah. But in the UK, it's traditionally... Uh, two to five years, right? Yeah. The rate. Um, in the US, that's 35 years. Yeah. So interest rate changes have very little impact on that market in the same way that it does in the UK. Yeah. Although you wouldn't sign, I mean, you know, if typically, for example, you, 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 your parents had said, oh, you know, we're on one and a half or two and a half, would you tie in for 25 years at 5.25 because you well, think they might come down again? So that there, I, You wouldn't we, want to. No, or but you'd we, be advised we, not to. You would need to, there must be, and we haven't, I haven't looked into this, but there must be certain periods of times where you can come off it or change, right, during mm. that period. So yeah. it's that either you're happy with this rate yeah. for 25, 35 years, or you can change it a bit like sort of paying off your mortgage, right? You can do it every five years or every three years, whatever it is. Yeah, well, uh, you, you definitely wouldn't have to pay the penalty of a 25-year mortgage. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I think that that's the that's the way they're going to have to do it. Mm. Um, but that will certainly spring more people onto it. Yeah, I mean, I think payment. there's you know having to have a deposit in the first place. I think is is the difficulty. But then you know we we, we get into the territory of of negative equity and the subprime mortgage crash of two thousand and eight, where um, where properties were worth less than what people were paying for them, or you know what their mortgage was on it. Um, and I think that that is certainly the difficulty and why um, lending criteria is so important to be strict. But why do people need to have such a large deposit when they're paying rent that is higher than somebody else's mortgage? I just I think that is really what 
and what needs to change to help people on the property ladder. Although, you know, Chris, people are so obsessed with being on the property ladder because there's not enough property to rent. And, and you know, you've got the uncertainty when you're renting. But home ownership isn't all that it's cracked up to be if property markets aren't going up, if, if, if it's right. not an earner for you or when you can, you know, when you hit 65 or 70 years old and you've paid off your entire mortgage and then you've got that asset to help you in your old age, I think that's why people are so obsessed with it. Um, but if you're paying off a mortgage and by the time you get to 65, you haven't paid it off or you're just paying interest only or, you know, you're paying half interest only and half um, capital, yeah. um, then you're not any better off. And you've had to replace the roof and you've had to replace the plumbing and you've had to put in a new boiler and this and that. And, you know, it's, and, and let's not forget, you're buying something for 500,000 and in actual fact, you're paying 800, 900,000 because you're paying off the interest. Correct. Yeah. So in actual, in actual fact... Is it always worth it? It's not. It's not always <laughs> yeah. worth it. We've talked about this in, in quite a lot of detail, actually, because a lot of countries in Europe, particularly in mainland Europe, they have a completely different relationship with yeah. property ownership. Yeah. Um, I often use Sweden as an example, but that's simply because I'm from there and it's such a difference to the UK in terms of how things operate. But there, everyone likes to have uh, home ownership, right? And like the UK, but not for investment purposes. Mm. You don't see property prices increase like that. You don't see people retiring, selling off their property to mm. help their um, their children or their grandchildren out or retiring somewhere sunny and, and then live life happily ever after. No. Homeownership is sort of like, it's, it's a given given right in, in these countries. Um, and you will have paid them off, paid off the mortgage by the end of the term. In Germany, for example, most people rent. Yeah. The biggest lettings market in Europe. Yeah. Most people rent. And more than 70% of the population rent because what's wrong with renting? You know, you rent for 10, 15 years as yeah. well. The rental yeah. contracts are long yeah. and they don't go up in price in the same way. So it's a completely diff different relationship. Is the UK going to change that relationship? Not easily because the finance industry is, is you know, there's billions to be earned there in terms of uh, interest charges, right? Mm. So how are they going to find that income? And whilst you can still earn from property, you still will, right? So, but I do think that the younger generation will have a completely different view. Uh, and when I say the younger generation, think of the 15, 16 year olds today yeah. in 10 years time. Yeah. They will probably not be that obsessed with property ownership. Well, provided they won't that, be able to buy anything. Well, that's right. So I think yeah. that whole, there's a 10 year gap there of people mm. not being able to buy, getting that idea mm. out of their head. Mm seeing that, you know, the capital appreciation isn't that high and then just renting. Yeah. Because I think the rental market, I'll be very buoyant on because I think the rental market will just go from strength to strength to strength Yeah. Um, over, over the next couple and, of decades. And I also think with the invention of smarter homes, smaller, smaller properties are going to be easier to live in. Um, and by what I mean about that is the tech that's going to be involved in these in these properties. I mean, you could have a small room where one entire wall is basically a screen that could show you, you know, I don't know, the the, the skyline of New York yeah, or which they've a done beach already. scene yeah. or, you know, and or you, you, you would get a feeling of so much more space. And perhaps there's, um, will there be easier ways of cooking and preparing food and you know this really sort of future future star 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 trek type of uh Living. accommodation well they call yeah. it a holly holiday holly, holly 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 yeah. <laughs> but i think you're onto something there because i think yeah. that's what's starting now with you know with apple's release of their sort of virtual reality headset mm. um you know being able to 
one of, I mean, one of the, I haven't tried one of them on. I can't remember what they're called now, but the, the Apple headset. Yeah. Um, that might be the name, actually. Um, you're able to view sort of IMAX size cinema screen yeah, on your, your head attached to your yeah. face mm-hmm. and, wherever, and and you can see it like it's like it's IMAX but you're yeah. sitting in an airplane or on a train yeah and you're experiencing it like you like if you were in a big uh, cinema um and that's just the beginning yeah I think that's going to change everything and I think we are going to start living more in sort of hubs yeah exactly know. hubs and there might be a communal a communal kitchen area a communal living area and you can see it happening already on the high street where mm. a lot of high streets mm. you know I live in Wimbledon myself and yeah. they've just had a massive renovation on a on a space they called center center court incidentally, yeah. being Wimbledon um and it's changed out now, and they've got rid of most of the leases or boots, H and M. They're all out, mm. and they've created your know, third space are in there, mm. and they've created flexible working, mm. and they've working, got golf simulators, health, health yeah, yeah, recreation. Tra- so yeah. they're trying to create these. Yeah. You know, uh, when I did economics, we called them CBDs, central yeah. business districts, but sort of big cities in smaller cities. Yeah, and then you live and you work. Yeah. You know, home away from home, if you like. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. a five-minute walk to get to your office. Yeah, and if um, you are living on your own in a really small apartment, what a great way to socialize! To socialize, to actually get some human interaction. Yeah, which I think we're desperate for, right? Because mm. I think that we've gone almost too much to the other extreme, mm. you know, where everyone's you know, people have been working from home because of the pandemic, and people have got used to it. Yeah, they dread the idea of going back in to work. But I don't think they dread the socializing aspect of it. I, I think, think they people dread, the dread sitting on a train for an hour and a half or when they're running. Yeah. You know, I mean, today I had to get uh, there was a, a reduced train service and it's not pleasant. It, it so really now, isn't. now you've got five minutes to walk to your office, mm. and you can go and go to the go and have a swim at yeah. lunch. You yeah. can have a golf simulator with mm. some friends later on, or yeah. whatever the case is. And yeah. You can go to the gym. You can do all these yeah. things and transact with the entire world. And yeah. then when you're done, five minutes to go home. Yeah. And I think that's more the sort of living we're going to see um, yeah. going forward. Oh, we'll a see. village within a city. Yeah. A, a, yeah. a village within a building complex. Yeah, because, you know, as human beings, we used to live very much more so sort of isolated, right? We were in groups. Right? Yeah. That's how, that's how we've yeah. always been. And yeah. that's small yeah. villages. Small yeah. villages. And I yeah. think you'd we're... marry someone from the next village so yeah. there's not too much interbreeding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you can see it in London, right? It, yeah. it's, it's gone from being really buzzy to it, it, certain parts of London where there's lots of restaurants and entertainment are still as buzzy as ever, mm. right? But a lot of areas, Canary Wharf being one of them, you know, I, I dare say the word ghost town, but, you know, they're struggling and, and they cannot get the people back into the office mm. because who, who would commute for two hours i think about mm. there's a lot of resi there as well though and maybe maybe that's a hub within itself if you're living in canary wharf and walking and working in canary wharf well i mean most of that is based on you know it's the finance industry right and yeah you know, that you can't get paid a, a five million pound bonus every january um you may not want to work Although there's the, the, the cap has has gone on bankers bonuses yeah i saw that and, and, and labor won't be changing that yeah which is sensible I but I, I wonder if I, if the finance industry will ever recover to what it used to be. I mean, do you remember we weren't allowed mm. to go on holiday during yeah, bonuses because yeah. that was the time Bonus when people season. were out buying. Yeah. Fill your boots. Yeah, yeah. fill your boots. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a yeah. long time since that happened. Yeah, but that's been replaced by by media and tech guys, right? Tech bros, tech bro bonus. Tech bros. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Okay, yeah, because we've rambled on um, and we're running out of time. Yeah. So, um, so next uh, week we're going to do another recording, which we'll release later on in the month. We yep. are going to the London Prop Tech Show, Matt and I, for two days. And we will be interviewing the CEO himself. Um, we will release more details before that. Um, but that should be an intriguing uh, Very much looking forward to that. Yeah. That'll be next episode. And then we've got a couple of other interesting characters lined up. Absolutely. Yeah, watch the space. Yeah. 
Very good. Well, follow us on all your uh, on all the various places where you can follow us. Yep. And uh, thanks very much. Stay tuned. Cheers. Bye.